hard alternating that. Thanks to Sebastian de Cron for that. It's a seven thing. It's like um, And then... So... It's actually from Jeff Tane Watts, apparently. Um, so that's with the left... Uh, that's with the right... The, the, the left grace notes, the first double with the right hand. Right, right, left, right, right, left, right, right, left, left with a grace note. Flam right, left, and then flam right, right, left, left. And you can do the opposite thing. So I find much easier. I think it's because of the three rights, a little propulsion on the three rights. I need to remember. Is to is to round it off with singles. Anyway, sorry, it's a bit of a random way to start, but yeah, I was. Um, I had a little bonus this week. I was teaching at um, teaching at work and. Um, actually, I'm just going to turn this fan heater off, which is probably quite noisy. In the background, you can probably hear that fan noise. Of course, the fans on. The fans on because of the title of this podcast, "The Winter Wonderland," which is nothing to do with the Christmas carol or whatever it is, Christmas music or whatever horrific vibe. Uh, it's actually a play on words. It's a play on words. There you go. Get it all, get it all fancy pants with the play on words. Um, sorry, no, anyway, um, just turn the fan off there, it was good. No, just to um, add a little bonus um, at work last week. Um, because... Um, student was ill, which is not which is not great for them, but they were ill, so and the student let me know and then um had the same Seb had the same thing. So he we were just sat chatting because last week I did a debt for him um and I was just talking about a couple of things in the in the gig. Um things that I found tricky, you know, as you do. You talk with your peers and your friends and stuff about stuff, I hope. I hope you talk with your friends and your peers about things you find tricky. I do. Um, I have no shame in that at all. Uh, find lots of things tricky, and we ended up yeah, having a conversation about drums, which was very nice. Um, oh, we 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 have a conversation all the time because we're good friends. But um, this was just like, we're setting a drum kit, and we're both getting up and playing and doing a few bits and bobs. And he was showing me that sticking because he was saying Jeff Tame what things, and he was saying, oh, I just wish I could just get round the round the instrument with it, because there's a, there's a thing of the sticking, you know this. So one two. Three, which is with a flam, which is a Swiss Army triplet, and then and then a pair of doubles with a flam at the beginning. So you've got the triple at the end because you've got the three lefts to create the grace note to go back to the right, right, you see. And there's lots of doubles in there because obviously you've got the double and then you've got the next grace notes to the... Um, you got left, right, right, and then you've got your Swiss Army triplet, which is obviously a one swung and one straight double. And then and then a flam to the double, a flam tap, 
But flam taps are repeated. So it's not really a flam tap. That's not a flam tap. That's just double strokes with a flam at the beginning of whichever hands. Or. So that's either way. That's that's right, right, left, left with a flam or left, left, right. I was just playing both. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, yeah, we ended up chatting about that and it was quite a nice little conversation. And I was sat today on the instrument um, practicing on the drum kit. And, um, yeah, was trying to get that down. And that's just, like, weird brain kind of malfunctions. Do you ever have those where you kind of got something down and then you come back to it and it's completely beyond you? Yeah, I have that from time to time. It's tricky. It's a bit weird. I find it a bit disorientating. But, um, anyway, I've got coffee with me here, so excuse the, um, the, the sounds of slurping which I just slurped on purpose in order to create the sound of slurping, which was completely stupid. Um, I hope you're well. Welcome back. Sorry I'm a week late. I think I did hint at this um, in the previous episode. And um, as I said in the previous episode, I was going to try and be super organised. I, of course, wasn't. So... um, the main reason why, actually, is because I'm sat in the drum shed. Drum's in the shed, that's what this podcast called. But the shed's got a leak, and it's a proper leak. Um, came up here a couple of weeks ago and uh, just had the drums. I'd done a gig and dumped everything just inside the door, very late night. I just kind of was tired and kind of put some stuff back on the shelves, but I just dumped the, one of the toms. I've got loads of new snare drums. And storage for all these new snare drums is a is a bit tricky. I have to be honest with you. I haven't really thought it through. Um, and um, yeah, I've gone a bit mad with the snare drum vibe. I've got another one I'm potentially going to buy as well, but I'm not sure whether I'm going to buy it. Um, anyway, I mean they're all resellable, and you you get your money back. And especially when I, the, the few of the ones I bought are second hand, so they're you know. Uh, anyway, um, the shelves where I normally keep my my sort of working kit. Um, the shelves were full because we got all these snare drums on them as I'd just taken some couple off the floor and stuff. And um, Anyway, when I picked the the Tom case up, the 12-inch Tom, uh, the top of the case was soaking wet and there was a bit of a puddle on the floor. Uh, and so I was in a bit of a hurry. I had to go to this gig with a wet drum, with two wet. The floor Tom case was a bit wet as well. Um I managed to dry them out, brought them back in the house and dried them out uh, after the gig. Uh, in fact, there was a really nice radiator in the gig. It was very, very warm. The railway in Stockport, anybody that plays there knows it. It's a very, very warm pub, but there's a, the, rail, the radiator's sort of on the, is, is on the entrance and exit thing opposite some tables. So you, I couldn't really put a drum case kind of, you know, just like in the way there. There's lots of older people, this trip hazard and lawsuits and serious injuries and hip replacement vibes oh, horrific things anyway so I was yeah anyway I couldn't do that so when I brought the drums home I brought the drums into the house and actually dried out the cases which was fine it's what cases are for and the drums were completely bone dry but the cases were a bit wet um, but then I was like I need to get to the bottom of this leak and then I've just been so busy I've hardly been up here 
Um, and I came up here last week and it was leaking again. And I've got this false ceiling in the the room next to me behind me. It's got the drum. It's a drum room. You see, this the room I sit in and do. It's my little where my little studio is. It's not. This is much less soundproof than the other half. The other half's not soundproof at all, really. But it's it's got quadruple glazing. It's got door and it's got lots of lots of foam on the walls and uh, and it's got this false ceiling in there, which I put in, which has made a massive difference. Actually, it has made a difference to. Uh, it's made a difference for the recording side. The drums sound very clean and very tight. So they're very easy to affect, you know, um, to do anything you want with them. They get a very, very clean drum recording because the room is so dry and it's a very small room. Um, so, yeah, no natural ambience at all. Or ambience. Um, anyway, I had to take the false ceiling out, which was a bit of a nightmare, you know. Um, and... And yeah, there's like I, I, I've done quite a good job of it. It's like a layer of foam, and then on the foam is attached to polycarbonate sheets, which I'd cut to size. And those polycarbonate sheets on the back of them, when the when the polycarbonate sheets came, they came in this really funky gold wrapping, which I saved because it was actually quite good. It was like foam, sort of foam. Um, it's not quite foam, but it was like. It wasn't just like a, a wrapping. It was a bit more substantial. And basically what I did was when I when I put the ceiling in, the very last piece, before I put it in, I used this stuff to line above it as a protective layer, basically. And I went right to the corner. So this whole thing was was kind of covering the four pieces. Like It's in four pieces. I built a little, um, I built a little X frame thing which was a, when I realised how flimsy these polycarbonate sheets that I bought were, I realised I'd completely messed up and hadn't really thought it through and uh, needed to build this um, this frame in order to hold up the polycarbonate things. I had this kind of thing I was going to hold them together with little brackets and that was not going to happen. They were just going to sag and bend and probably snap and fall on my head, which is not great. Uh, and also just not soundproof anything. But this, I built this frame and I was quite proud of it actually, and it, and, it, and it's quite easy to take down. It, it, uh, and that is on little brackets, and then the polycarbonate sheets sit on that frame, and it's worked really, really well. And uh, and I was, very, you know, I measured everything, I moved all the shelves, I could still put the drums up there, I could put an eighteen-inch bass drum still on the shelf, on its uh, shallow side, on the fourteen-inch side. Um, I can't put a twenty because it's the uh, uh, actually I should be able to put. No, I don't think the twenty fits width-wise, but. No, the twenties by fourteen as well, but it should be able to put that up there. But anyway, it's too a bit too big for the shelf. But blah blah blah. Anyway, um, I took the false ceiling out, and then then there was this layer of this kind of stuff. And luckily, I managed to have the door open because the door is right next to the ceiling. This is such a dull story. I'm so, I do apologise for wasting your existence on this story. Um, but it's uh, there's a sort of there is a purpose. This there's a means. This story there is some kind of there's, a, there's an end point to this story, which has some relevance to something to somebody at some point at some place in history. Um, when I opened the door, I managed to pull this stuff sort of down and, and out towards the door. And as I was doing that, water was flowing. Oh, sorry, water was flowing. Um, yeah, just flowing. There's water flowing, which is not great, you know. Uh. Well, what it had done is it had managed to capture 
some of this leak. There wasn't a huge amount of water up there, but it had captured a lot of the leak. But some of it had obviously got through, and then it just made itself made way down, as things do. Water always finds a way, as we know. It doesn't matter what you do, water always finds a way. And, uh, it, yeah, it managed to come down in this certain spot. Now, the weird thing was, actually, the leak, when I pulled everything down, the leak is exactly above where uh, the water had fallen onto the floor, which was a bizarre coincidence, you know, because it had to it had to go all the way over this stuff, go through the polycarbonate and the foam, and then it had sort of flow, flown along the, the wooden frame I'd built and it had fallen onto the floor, and it was e almost exactly in line with where the leaks coming in through the roof. And uh, I've just come up here this evening. We had a lot of rain a couple of days ago. It's been quite dry today and yesterday. But, yeah, a couple of days ago, it was very, very wet. And, um, yeah, there's still a leak. So and I'm not gonna get, it's not going to get repaired. It was supposed to get repaired on Thursday, but it didn't show up, which was a bit of a shame because um, it's a one-person outfit. And uh, But he's coming on Thursday, so this is Sunday night. So that's why I've not been up here. I've not been able to use the room because um, I don't want to set anything up in the room, really. So the, all the drums... So my little drum kit is in the house, and it's been there since my partner moved away in August. So I've got this very small drum kit in the living room, which, I, which I'm practising on a lot. And then um, I moved... I did a gig the other day, and I've just got the the 18, the, the, the jazz kits now in the living room, so... I'd set that up up yesterday because I've got these trio gigs at the end of the month, Trio JDM, my new organ trio with Jamie Taylor and Martin Longhorn. New album called Fast Corners is just about to come out. It's uh, right at we're right at the last hurdle now. Oh, it's not a hurdle. We're at the last uh, furlong or something or some analogy or whatever. The final stretch. The um, we're down the start finish straight. Whatever you want to call it, we're about to cross the finish line. Another analogy there with this CD. We're just waiting for the corrections on the sleeve design. We've got everything else in place. And that's, you know, that was a, we recorded that beginning of August and mixed the beginning of September. And um, to be at the point now where it's going to go off to the duplicators next week and be ready for the week after is pretty good, really. It's not coming out on a label, it's self release. We've got quite a few gigs. Got a few gigs at the end of the month, uh, into December, about six gigs just to start off. And then we've got more in the spring, uh, in late February, early March and into the end of March. Uh, and obviously beyond that as well. So really kind of looking forward to that and working, practicing quite a lot in order to, you know, to feel like I'm in some way on top of the drum kit at the moment with, uh, with how busy it is at work and stuff. And um, I am working really hard at the drums on all the time I've got, uh, which is exhausting, but it's also necessary. So, you know, we go through these periods in life sometimes where you've just got to keep the hammer down because uh, needs must, you know. I've got these gigs. The music's really... Um, the re music's really easy and it's really hard, if that makes any sense. So the music I know... So in that sense of the word, it's easy because I'm not walking into a situation. Most of the time I, I do gigs and I don't know what the music is. Or as the thing of last weekend, I know the music very well, but, um, but other problems are making the gig much more difficult than it needed to be. But uh, I'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, uh, this gig, the trio, I know the music really well. So 
you're walking on stage and you've got a blank canvas really every time you know you've, you've got this music that you know very well and you can, you've got decisions to make haven't you you can say okay I'm going to play this straight down the line in the way that I know it I've recorded you know we've recorded an album we've done quite a few gigs already uh, we've rehearsed twice um, the two rehearsals over the May and we rehearsed in May and July so not really any kind of amazing rehearsal but it was enough to get the recording you know, get ready for the recording the recording was a great success um in 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 all respects of the recording, you know, the playing and the, the music and and the actual um, recording of the music as well. So you know, often you know, we can go to the studio and play really well, but you know, we're suffering from just not a great studio or or not a great engineer or you know you know skimping on something or there's a problem. I've I've been in studios where there's been computer problems, you know, where the computer's just not working properly. So. You're halfway through a take, and then you get the, the dreaded thing in the headphones. Sorry, guys. Sorry, the computer. The computer stopped recording. And you're like, what? 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 At what point is that a thing? You know, I've had that quite a lot. Uh, a couple of studios, particularly. Um, anyway, we'll draw a veil over that. That was nothing. There was nothing like that in this experience. This was exactly the opposite of that experience. And um, and it was yeah so you know in all, in all senses of the word the the mixing session that I did down with Owen down at the beginning of September and went down to mix with him was really real success and then the mastering was done by a guy called Dave O'Higgins a great sax player who uh, British sax player who I've known for a long time actually um, I used to play when Dave used to come up occasionally and do gigs like at Stoke Jazz and and, and Chester at Alexander's and places. I used to just be in house rhythm sections with Dave and he was always great, you know. And Dave plays in the Matt Bianco band, which I was stepping in last week. He's the MD of that band and he's been playing with um, with that band with Mark um, since like, God, 1990. It's quite scary, actually. But, um, but yeah, so Dave mastered it and he did a great job. He clocked. He clocked something very quickly that where we'd left, we'd left a little bit in the mix, shall we say? You know, sometimes when you mix an album, uh, you may you may make a decision about just leaving a little bit of something in inverted commas, and that could be level. It could be um, part of the uh, a particular frequency range with you know within the eqing or whatever and and also um with kind of um dynamic compression or something you know you, you might just leave something for the masterer to um to have to be able to play with you know and we we did purposefully uh and dave uh enhanced that part um and if we hadn't left it then uh, it would have made his job um, probably a little bit harder because it, it just meant that being able to tweak that area. I don't know a lot about it, but I think just having that thing of going, oh, you know, oh, it, it could, it could, it could have a little bit more in that area. I think for somebody who's mastering something, I think that's helpful. Uh, anyway, it was a very positive thing, and uh, we've ended up with a fantastic sounding album. Uh, it's very, very well mixed. 
and the drums, you know, dry, no reverb. I mean, I put reverb on everything. Here, I put reverb on everything, you know. But I need to because of this room. It's very small, but... Uh, no, yeah, we, I played in the big room. Um, so if if you studios or studio WZ down in uh, in Pembrokeshire, um, Owain's place, if you've ever been there or seen pictures, you, you'll probably know that there's a big room. And then there's two smaller rooms. There's a little room in the corner for vocals and for double bass and things like that, or for amps, actually, is what we used it for, for the guitar amps. Uh, or guitar amp actually um, and then there's a room underneath the um, the recording kind of console the recording room is upstairs it's an old church and it's a chapel actually and it's uh, the recording room is sort of upstairs behind you but if you're in the drum room it's it's above your head and so there's a there's a drum kind of area where he's got all this storage of his drums and it's like a wooden room uh, wooden floor with a with a rug and then it's got a big uh, patio door which is slides slides shut and um, and you get pretty good separation from the stuff that's going on in, in the main room but when we recorded well we I recorded in the big room uh, and we put the Hammond organ um, was in there and it worked really really well and it wasn't what I would have done so the genius of Mr. Um, Mr. Owain, um, yeah, he called it right. And then it meant we didn't have to put any reverb on the drums because the natural ambience of that room is really beautiful. It's a lovely room. It's uh, it's well treated. And we had a lot, well, a lot of shields and screens around the drums. Jamie was in the room with me. He was right next to me playing his guitar, but his amp was in the booth and the door was closed and it was really great separation. On both ends, the guitar has got very, very tiny, tiny artifact of drums in the guitar. Very, very little, and and vice versa. Uh, and then the organ was a great separation as well. Um, so yeah, blah blah blah. Anyway, so that was kind of that's all that's been going on. And the practice really is has been aimed at being able to um, work on two things in parallel. And I don't know if this is something that um, that you can relate to or not, but I tend to take um, tend to take two approaches to these sort of situations. One is pretty straight ahead. It's learning and making sure I learn my parts well. You know, um, what I mean by that is, you know, I've, I've already said it. And I made the statement of I know the music, so it's easy. But there's nothing wrong with going back to the parts that you've recorded and just tweaking. You listen to the recording and go, you know, I mean, I always have this thing of like, when I've worked with songwriters, the thing that I always find with recording drums, I don't know if this is your experience, but this has always been my experience, is as you record, things become simpler and simpler. It's very very straightforward in that respect and through experience you realize uh well i've realized this is you leave you leave a lot of the bullshit and the ego at the door you know because you don't come in with like yeah i'm gonna you know i'm gonna inflict my my vibes and chops on this situation 
that's nonsense. Uh, and I used to feel like that when I was younger. I used to think that was what you—that was why you were there. You know, I used to think, well, people like my drumming. They've heard me on gigs, and I've gone to the studio, and you know, they—they're asking Dave Walsh because they've heard Dave Walsh. You know, and that's not actually the case. They—they—they're they're asking you because most likely they like the feel of the way that you play but they need you to play specifically what they need you to play, but with that feel, you know, with that sound. And they might like you as a person as well. They might just like being around you. You need to find you an easy person to be around so it makes their life easier in communication and feeling accepted and, and feeling loved and all those things that artists need when you're working with them because you've got to make sure that you're, you know, that you, you're on their team. You know, it's so important, that thing of... Um, of why you're there in the first place, you know. Uh, there's never been a situation in the studio I've gone into where that's not been the priority. Um, but what I used to do when I was younger was I used to kind of come in and think I was going to play all this stuff, you know. I'm going to hear all my stuff recorded really well. It's going to be amazing. And I'll sit at home like a, you know, like a, I'm not going to use a, I'm not going to use that. I was going to use a very harsh word. But... Um, it was. I was listening to Chris Harris, the car guy. I listen, used to listen to Chris a lot. I don't listen to him so much anymore because I don't. The podcasts that he does on the on the collecting cars thing, they're they're very badly recorded and they just don't work very well in the car. I have to put the volume very loud and they they hurt my ears. But he said this thing once about listening back to yourself on these podcasts. He called himself a narcissist. You know, uh, I was, yeah, going to do a narcissistic thing and sit at home and listen to my own podcast, you know, and listen to myself pontificating about blah, 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 you know, whatever. So, and it's that thing, isn't it? you know, you kind of go into the studio and I used to think, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the studio and get this stuff down and I'll be able to hear myself playing all these great things that I've practiced and they'll be really well recorded and then, yeah, I'll feel amazing about that. And quite quickly as I, you know, as I had more of those experiences, I realised that nothing could be further from the truth, you know. Occasionally it's great if you play something and it's recorded and it's a vibe and it's something that comes out of the out of the ether, out of the moment and it's like a vibe, you know, that's great. But my experience is that's left for the gigs. Uh, that's always been the case for me. And and that's the thing, that's the kind of selfless giving thing of this whole situation is is that those things are only ever shared between you and the people in that moment, you know, who were there, you know. And so it's that appreciation of being in the moment because it's only ever the moment, really, um, when, you, when you're going to have the opportunity to have this kind of open book thing. So um, anyway, it's a very long-winded way of talking about this kind of approach that, you know, when I've gone in the studio working with artists, you very quickly, you, you as you as you do take after take after take, the the, the refining process, um, that word Stuart McCallum used, distilled, the distilling of an idea, the distilling of a part, the distilling of a sound, the distilling of what what is this music trying to say, you know. And um, and I think really great players. And I don't put myself in this category at all. They, they can they can sort of do that live as well, and they can also do it in the studio very quickly. So they're very they're very cost effective people because they can walk into a studio and get to the essence of something super quickly, and record it, and 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 almost like the John Robinson thing of two takes, no more. You know that that vibe that that 
uh, whether it's a myth or a legend or a thing, it's a, it's it's apparently a thing. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I could see that, you know, because he's very well prepped, John Robinson, you know, and all these people. They're very well prepped, uh, as well as being outstanding musicians, you know, and, and, out, and unbelievably experienced, like experienced beyond the years of many lifetimes of, of most individuals, you know, to have recorded literally thousands and thousands of albums is literally lifetimes of experience, you know. So I wonder these people are pretty fucking good, you know. Pardon my... Um, but but the thing, that, yeah, the thing I, that I always noticed was as I went in the studio, things would get more and more refined, you know. And that's the same with the jazz album in some respects, you know. When we were recording the Peter Bernstein tune, Little Green Men, on this record... I only really got to the drum part that I really um, settled on in my mind, my approach to it, trying to get away from Bill Stewart. It's very hard because Bill's is such a strong identity, his sound, his vocab, his feet, everything about it draws you in, you know. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. But it ain't me and I don't want it to be me, you know. And so... You're playing that music, and all the time, you're, you're, I'm trying to find my feet with that music. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be Dave Walsh in that music, you know, just because that's all I've got. Whether it's any good or not is irrelevant. It's just I've just got to be myself, you know. And uh, I'm pretty good at that because I'm not really good at copying things, to be honest with you. Um, but when we did the last take of that tune, oh no, actually, when we did when we started doing the takes on the day. I just remember just counting in the first time and then was like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing with this now. I know what this is. And it's not a part. It's just an approach to the feel under the head. And then I went back to the versions we'd recorded a few months before. We did a couple of versions of it. We did a live gig and then we did this other little recording for demos for gigs and realised that I was, I was actually playing it sort of like that anyway, but I hadn't realised, you know, I hadn't really gone this is it because i was leaving my in my head i think i was just leaving things open you know in order to sort of travel in whatever direction they would until the moment of like right we've got to record this thing now and we've got to have your shit together you know um i just put it into context you know the first day we went down on this on the um on the sunday on the sunday afternoon or the saturday afternoon, I can't remember anyway we went down on an afternoon we set up didn't record anything that first day. We just got set up, got a sound together, got everybody happy, headphones happy, everything with the mix happy, sound happy, everything was happy. And then we went, then we went to bed and then sometime between that and the next day, Owain went in with Tom, uh, who was working with him, um, and they tweaked some stuff and it was just better the day after. There was something better about everything. We got everything, we were happy with everything, but then... He made the effort to go in, either late doors or early doors, whatever it was, and 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 make things better. And then in that first day, because of that vibe, we had um, we had two days to record the whole album and get a desk mix to walk away with. We did seven tunes in that day, and they're really well recorded. You know, I mean, the playing's really good, and they're obviously very well recorded. And I just had a rule with the guys. I just said it's two takes, no more. You know. This is what we've got to work to. Sorry, I know it's a bit, but we've just got to focus. We've got to be, we've, we just haven't got time to be pontificating jazz musicians, 
you know, reflecting on every moment that could have been better. Um, because you know that's life. My my for my my drumming life is that you know I, I'm better now than I was in in August as a drummer. Only very slightly, but I'm better. I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm more on it. I'm going forward because I'm practicing. It's simple, you know. And um, and I can feel that in my playing uh, every day, you know. And, and doing the gig I did last weekend, loud big gig with a, in a big room and and playing uh, sort of jazz music, but very loud was very very good for my playing. It kicked me up the arse, really kicked me up the arse, you know. Um, I just wish I could do that all the time. To be honest with you, I just feel be so much stronger. Um, really, really, you just can't get that experience. There's no other place to get it other than you know out in the real world in a room making a sound getting your ass kicked, people telling you to play more of this, more of that, play louder, play this, do change that, stressful sound checks. I mean, just to put it in perspective, when we got there, you know, we had an hour and a half sound check, and I hadn't done a gig since 2021 with Matt Bianco. I did two shows at Ronnie Scott's, and I was pretty well prepped for that show. Uh, this was a longer set, and I was very well prepped with the music. Um... The problem I had when we got there was the drum kit was shit. You know, it was a very good, on paper, the tech spec. I got it sent ahead and I, I'd agreed everything. I was happy with the symbols. They were Istanbul. They were Zildjian's, unfortunately, which is not my thing. But, you know, you don't get to choose. And, and you know, it was a big jazz festival and they just had their own sort of backline thing. And then when I got there anyway, the drum kit was not great. <clears throat> it was this sort of average pearl kit. And I like pearl drums. I used to have a pearl. I had a master's custom for a long time. It was a lovely kit. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. But these were not these were not great drums. Anyway, uh, but the, I had a real, I had two serious problems with the drum kit. One was the snare drum stand was broken. Now the Matt Bianco gig is lots of fast bossa novas, and some of them are brush on the head. And the thing you're leaning on the snare drum all the time. You know, I'm not. I mean, I'm not literally leaning like my whole body weight on it. But you, you're the snare is. When I say leaning, I, I mean you know like um, your um, your the snare is like one of the centers of everything, and the other center of everything is the bass drum. And the bass drum pedal was a nightmare. It kept slipping, and it was shit bass drum pedal. And we had an hour and a half. And when we got in the room, the drum kit was in the wrong place and they set all the lights up, massive theatre. They set all the lights up and they were like arguing with Dave and uh, and Mark Riley and, um, and Graham Harvey as well was asking for the piano to be moved in. So there's all this shit going on and I'm just looking at this drum kit going, I need to fucking get on this kit and sort out. This is a nightmare. I've got this really stressful gig. I've not played with these guys for two years. We've got an hour and a half to get through 16 tunes, you know, and it's the it's the headline opening gig of this jazz festival, you know. And I, my head was fuck absolutely all over the shop, all over the shop, because I was tired as well. I got up at 5 a.m. and this was now this was now kind of uh, 6 p.m. in the evening, you know. And uh, and they they're all super chilled out. That band, they're lovely, lovely people, all of them, you know, really great people. So that's cool. I know them all pretty well as well, so. And, uh, and it was a really nice trip, and it was all went very well in the end. But I had a, this very, very stressful sound check, and the biggest problem was the bass drum pedal wasn't working, you know. And I couldn't stop the sound check to sort the bass drum pedal out. And so at the end of the sound check, I went to the, the, the main guy. I said, uh, there's a problem with the bass drum pedal. Can you get another pedal? And he said, no, we haven't got another pedal. And I was like, oh, great. So 
that was that, you know. Um, and so the thing about that gig is there's lots of fast, fast bossa novas and sambas. And the bass drum, ba-boom, 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 needs to sort of that pulse thing. You can't just rely on the minim thing. You've got to do you've got to do the the dotted thing before the before you know before one and three as well, or one and two if you're thinking if you're thinking in two four sambas and you know. But it's like the the bass drum is the center, and then the second thing was the snare drum stand was broken. It, it detached from the stand, so it was. I managed to push it back on, and it sort of, but it was like rocking about, you know. So that was going on. Anyway, got through the gig. It was all fine. So blah 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 blah. But playing in those big rooms. You know, playing in those big rooms is nothing like it. I always feel, even one gig, I always feel stronger after one gig. I always feel like I've just got an extra 10%, literally 10% in the tank, you know. It's not 2%, it's 10%. Um, and when I, when I did, I'm looking at the wall here, Tom McRae, 11th, 11th the 10th, 10, uh, when we did uh, Encher Belgique in uh, in Brussels. Just remembering that tour, coming back off that tour and my first jazz gig and feeling 50% stronger, you know, because two months on the road or seven weeks or whatever it was, you know, eight weeks, yeah, seven or eight weeks. It's like, it's like nearly 40 gigs we did, 30-odd gigs, just every night playing the same parts roughly and things being slightly different in all big different rooms, you know, big, but, but for big audiences and, and playing very dynamic music. Because that gig, you know, that particular show, in fact, both both the shows we did, because we rehearsed a, big, a, a show for 2015 and as well when the album came out, which was a fantastic show. That was the the gig we did there in 2015 was was probably the high point, I think, for me of that. It was one of the last gigs. It should be a high point, but it was the the show was. And there was people in the audience and coming up to afterwards who'd seen the other tour and they were going, "This, this band is like, this it's on a whole other level now." They, they couldn't believe the vibe of that show, you know. But the thing about it is just that that vibe of playing in big spaces and just being able to really lay into the drums and and just have a vibe, you know, enjoy the enjoy the drums. But um. Anyway, to get back to this kind of thing, that is, is you know, I've, I've noticed that I've got that kind of strength at the moment and I know it's going to disappear because it does, because it's just, you know, you go back to, I did a gig the other day and it was nice and I haven't got any gigs now until this tour starts with the, the trio. There's only six gigs, but it's the, the back-to-back Sunday through to uh, Sunday with a day off on the Friday. Oh, no, I've got a gig with Arun Ghosh on the Friday now. So I'm doing a gig in Derby, down in Derby, Derby Jazz, I'm not sure. But anyway... Yeah, so there's no day off actually. Uh, oh no, no, there's nothing on the Monday. Sorry, yeah, we've got Sunday, Lincoln, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with the trio. Fridays with Arun, and then Saturday, Sunday, he's back with the trio again. <clears throat> we're doing like Zaffarellis and Seven Arts, and we're doing Matt Freds and the Puzzle, and uh, down in Lincoln Jazz Cafe. So um, yeah, some nice gigs. Um, what else are we doing? The Les Car, which was the first gig we got, which Jamie Taylor got actually, and that's the gig I'm most looking forward to, really, um, because the Les Car is uh, somewhere I've been playing a long time, um, and uh, yeah, it's going to be nice to bring to bring my uh, my new trio there. I played my old band, my fusion band. We did uh, we did a, did that a couple of times back in the early noughties. 
Uh, that was great. I played there a lot with lots of different people, with lots of singers. Rosie, Rosie Brown, who's a native of Sheffield. Well, she's a Nottingham, Nottinghamshire girl, I should say, lady. Uh, she lives in Sheffield now. But I used to do her band there. I used to play there quite a lot. and played there a lot with Stuart and done a lot of gigs there with Jamie Sharif and done with Jamie Taylor and with Richard Isles and all sorts of people. Done tons and tons and tons of gigs there over the years. And Jez Matthews, who runs that gig, has done a fantastic job of making it into really elevating that gig. Um, I mean, it was always a great gig when Chris Walker ran it, but he's just kind of, you know, it was just getting a bit, starting to get a bit quiet. And Chris was super busy with his playing and stuff. And, and Jez took it over and he kind of changed the vibe of it a bit. And he's done a great job of it. So I'm really looking forward to going back there with the trio. I'm so grateful to get a gig there with the trio because it was a cancellation. It was booked back in, May or June, but it was a cancellation, you know. So we're very lucky to have got that. Um, so that's the, yeah, that's the tour. Um, this isn't supposed to be a tour promotional thing. I'm talking about this parallel, sorry, get back to the topic, this parallel approach to practicing. So the first one is about tweaking those parts, you know. And so that whole thing about going in the studio and, you know, you kind of get to a part and all that stuff. But you can always tweak, you know, uh, I find when I'm working with songwriters and I, and I learn the tracks from the studio, um, it's not more of a tweak thing. It's a solidification thing. It's, it's a thing of just getting really on top of. Because you know, I never feel in the studio like I'm a hundred percent on top of a part because you just haven't got the time. You know, especially if it's if it's if you're if you've been spending a day tracking drums on one tune and someone's trying to find a thing and you're just you're just there as a you know you're just this this doing your job you know and you get in there but then but you know by the middle of the afternoon there there's conversations about comping or there's talks about doing a whole take and things and there's all sorts of conversations going on but you feel like you've got to a part you know and then if you sort of um, my aim is always to try and get one complete take but the thing I've I've noticed when I work with songwriters is they like certain things from different takes for different reasons than, than you would maybe as a drummer. So you just have to kind of get over that. Comping is is common now with Pro Tools, you know. Um, I mean, vocal vocalists totally comp takes. I mean, they'll they'll go round and round 20 times and the producer will take the best phrase from each one of those 20 takes, you know. And the thing, I read Steve Lukather's book recently, The Gospel According to Luke, and, and, and all that early Toto stuff, when they were doing all the vocal recordings, I, I, I had no idea of, you know, how long David Page took, you know, to record those vocals. Um, I yeah, my my idea of of how those albums were made and the reality of them was very different because, you know, Picaro and Lukather and 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 the other Picaro brothers and you know the other people involved in that band they will have done their stuff probably in two days. You know, Picaro particularly and Lukather would have thought they'd probably have got their parts very, very quickly. But the vocal thing was a totally different vibe, you know, didn't realise. And this was in the days before Pro Tools. This was, this was to tape. So this would have been like a labour of, God, beyond love, you know, God knows what, they'll have been the engineer and whoever is running those vocal sessions, you know. So I so I often think now, you know, because I you know, work with artists who, who, who've, who've, done, who've been involved in the record industry, when you spend a day tracking drums on one track and you go, God, it's taking a whole day, it's like, that's nothing. 
really is nothing. When someone's got a process, you know, you, you're sort of giving into that process. But I, you know, I often feel like by the end of that day, I've got to, I've got to a part. And then when I go back to that track and we play it live, it's just a consolidation thing. It's like learning, remembering for a start, and then learning, relearning the part. You know. Now with this thing, you've got like you know, playing jazz drums on on Pete Bernstein's Little Green Men. You know, Pete Bernstein recorded that on uh, an early solo album he did, and then he's recorded it three. I think he's recorded it three times with the Larry Golding, Bill Stewart, Pete Bernstein trio. Um, in fact, their last album, it's on their last album. Um, so, he, you know, he keeps coming back to this tune and it's a great tune. It's, it's essentially a blues, but it's got quirky, um, it's got a quirky in kind of intro thing and then it's got a tag. So it's a, it's it's a, got an eight bar intro thing. It's got this kind of crotchet triplet vibe in the second four bars, uh, which you can approach like Bill Stewart. All the three different versions I've heard him do, he, and and the live he plays it differently all the time. And this is this is kind of the point of what I'm getting to. Um, the um, then it's a twelve bar blues in inverted commas. It's a twelve bar thing, blue kind of blues. And then at the end of it, there's just this four-bar tag at the end of the tune. So it becomes like you get this extra four bars. And it's just that's the beginning of the solo. And you solo around the 12-bar thing. Beautiful. At the end of the solo, you play the tag, and then it's 12-bar thing. And then the drum solo, we the, the arrangement we do is I play over the intro, 4-4, four, four, and then it's 4-8. and eight. I, I like playing 4-8 and eight on blues. Johnny Griffin was my early influence from that with Kenny Washington. Uh, one of the first sort of jazz, live jazz things I listened to when I was 15 on the television. I had it videoed, 15 or 16, and I watched it 100, 200 times, you know. Kenny Washington playing this burning fast blues thing on this uh, Johnny Griffin quartet live at the Village Vanguard. And um, if you ever get a chance to see it, just, just type in Johnny Griffin live at the Village Vanguard, and he's 81. Um, it's great. They only play four or five tunes. on. It's just like a... It's like a double header broadcast with the Richie Cole quintet, which is not that great. I mean, I watched that to death as well, just because it was jazz, you know. But um, in hindsight, the two—it's a game of two halves, shall we say? You know, the Johnny Griffin, um, I mean, Buster Williams, I think, is on the Johnny Griffin one when he was young. You know, he's absolutely—I mean, Kenny Washington is steaming on it, ridiculous. The first tracks is really fast blues. It's about but that kind, of, that kind of speed. It just goes round and round in this 12-bar thing. And when they do the drum exchange, he does four and then Kenny has eight. And there's something just relentless about that thing. Because the four and four and four thing, I don't like that on the blues. I'm not into it. Uh, and... Um, I've tried other weird things like six and six, which is just stupid. It harmonically feels odd, even as a drummer. Just just feels like a like a silly maths game, really. I've tried that. It never worked, or it never really sat comfortably. Um and so yeah, kind of or you just do twelves, which is fine, you know. But my preference is four and eight, and at pretty much any tempo, actually. Because it's just that that vibe of getting into the getting into the where the harmonic movement happens and what that kind of what that kind of feeling for me gives in relation to phrasing, you know, it feels like um yeah, depending on what the chord progression is, but there's essentially, you know, 
when you're first hitting that chord four uh, as a kind of very generic kind of thing, you know, but then it could be it could be any kind of sort of variation on that on that chord progression. Anyway, blah blah blah. Um, but the little green men thing with with Bill Stewart and the way the way he plays the solo on that is is very different than the way we do it. Um, but it's kind of <clears throat> just taking that tune and the and the idea of of uh, of approaching that tune and going okay i've got my i've got my approach to playing over the melody you know and then there's like what am i going to leave open here so you know with jazz drums the comping is always different it's always different when I, you know when i when I'm talking to young players about transcribing and uh, i always try and encourage young players to transcribe comping sections really good comping um because it just teaches them what about the sound world of it like the actual what's the balance on the the internal balance of the instrument the instrument's a drum kit it, it consists of many parts it should sound like one thing and drummers getting into playing jazz was one of the things they find hardest, you know, is that they think that practicing... I mean, they practice independence exercises, and I've said, I've said on this podcast before, and I say it when I'm teaching, I don't believe in that term, independence, because I don't want it to be independent of... I don't want it to be outside the sound or the feel or the the vibe of of the drum kit it's interdependent it should be coordinated in an interdependent way um and that's my take on on how to practice comping and accompaniment ways of playing the the, the way of of being able to play a part within another ostinato figure like a polyrhythmic thing, as Elvin would say, you know, many rhythms. You've got layers of rhythms going on and you want them to be interdependent of each other. You want them to be able to have a cohesive sound that works as one instrument. And so, you know, when you're comping uh, and, and you I, I say to young players, you know, you should check out blah, 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 listen to the comping on, you know, Seven Steps to Heaven is is a very uh, is a great solo, uh, very melodic and amazingly musical solo. Tony Williams, super young, but the comping, you know, particularly under the piano solo, is is so interesting. The way in which the way in which it propels the end of phrases and, and the way in which you know the interaction. All at the right times, you know, and it's having that skill of, of, um, of being able to, being able to comp in a way in which doesn't get in the way, but uh, I mean the, the Thelonious Monk thing. I think his line was something along the lines of, "It's the job of the drummer to make the saxophone player sound good." You know, <laughs> I think it's something roughly like that, and most of that's big about the comping, you know. The time, the times are given. If your time's not very good, then sort it out. You know, if you can't make it better, do something else. I mean, it's just a simple thing, you know. Um, 
And I mean, I'm still working on my time. I always will do, and my time's all right. Um, you know, it's yeah. We've got some time together. Got a bit of a time vibe going on, and um, especially in a kind of better at the better at the meter sense of the time, as in the te- sort of tempo retention. Um, I'm kind of just a bit more disciplined, I think, than I used to be. You know, uh, and so occasionally it's hard. And, and I played the gig the other night, and there was a ballad, and it. It was very, very noisy. I don't really know why he played the ballad really, but he wanted to play the ballad and he did and it was beautiful, but it slowed down, you know, and there was nothing I could do about it. It was nothing at all. doesn't matter how hard I tried. My downbeat was early with this sort of little sort of vibe of hesitation between the piano and the bass to each other and just annoyed the background noise, you know, it was nothing really to do with those guys. It was to do with the noise. And so by the time we got back to the tune, you know, the tempo had dropped. And, and I always find things like that a bit disappointing, even though you know, I've explained why. I'm still I'm still a bit disappointed, really, you know. Um, the, it's, you know it's one of those things. You put yourself in that situation. And um, it's just you chalk it up. You're always chalking things up to experience, I think. You're being aware of what's working and what's not working and just, you know, it's not never ever taking anything for granted. But anyway, so yeah, I've got this kind of, just taking that one tune, you know, the comping and the approach to the melody has got vibe. So I've got that vibe and that's cool. But I can always work on that part a little bit more, you know, I can think, well, what's the bass drum really doing? What am I really, the tune is set, you know, Jamie's playing the tune, it's, it's this, this blues, this main of this tune on this blues sequence. It's two, the main tune is two lots of 12. And then this little tag. And we've got a little rhythmical thing on the second time where there's a quaver later on the on, on the first melody note on the second 12. A little variation. So there's a moment there. It's always these kind of moments to aim for in music. I've got that thing there. Then I've got to make sure I'm on the vibe of that. You know, I've got to navigate my way to that point, point to point playing. Definitely point-to-point point playing in it. And then I'm just thinking about the bass drum. I'm like, can I make the bass drum part any more succinct, you know? Is it, is it just a bit, is it waffly or is it really, you know, the, the, the kind of ride part and snare part, it feels funky in the hi-hats, um, keeping the hi-hat ostinato vibe going. So that's cool. Um, I might occasionally have a little bit of expression in the hi-hat, but it's connected to the left hand, so that's fine, you know. Look, the bass drum, what's the bass drum doing? Is it really blah, blah, blah? So these are the sort of things, you know, that I'll be sort of thinking about over the next few couple of weeks. And then then there's just the thing of how much do you leave? So that's the second approach. You know, you get all, you, you kind of, you just sort of refine a bit, distill a bit, get things a little bit more focused and be like, yeah, this is, and then you've got this like thing of like, okay, so this tune, I've got two solos, and then I've got my solos, and I'm soloing over the second half of the intro for four bars, and it's a crotchet triplet feel. So I always got to reference that crotchet triplet feel because that's the melody. The melody's, you know, the melody's in charge here, and it's a rhythmical, it's a strong rhythmical statement. And then I've got this vibe of like four and eight, you know. And then it's like, what's the era? What's the kind of, what's the vibe of this playing? What's the vocab, you know? Because we don't want to fall into a thing of just playing all the same vocabulary. 
you know, these pieces of music have slightly different era feels about them. And so it's having that ability to, you know, of, of, of having the kind of right thing to say, you know, and also being open with it enough that I'm going to surprise myself because that's the thing I most look forward to on the gigs, really, you know. Um, obviously, you know, the people and the play and the music and everything is great, but it's just the really golden moments are where, where I'll play something and it's literally the first time I'm hearing it as well as everybody else, you know. That's the dream. That's the dream of it all. And, you know, I'm playing those... Um, when I'm playing like solos, it's it's all kind of like that, but they are patterns that I know and, and they are muscle memory things that are being played with intent in the moment and emotionally in the moment and they'll have a character of their own in that moment. But it's um, the thing where you play something where it's like a surprise is it's just that thing of when you, when you phrase a response in a sentence to something really well and you feel succinct and you feel like wow i've just i've just surpassed myself there i've just said something that was that rather profound you know or was that was i you know or when you're having like an argument with somebody of in a way a disagreement with somebody and you manage to say what it is you know say what you want to say in a way which is clear and correct and it's not in a kind of regretful way in any way you know you know, you, you, you didn't miss something or you didn't say something in a way which was, you know, which is not a great vibe, you know, might, you know maybe it was over-aggressive or, you know, or, or an untruth that was spoke in haste, you know, and all those kind of things. Just that, that vibe of sometimes of saying something really clear and really succinctly and, and, and that's what it f it's the same feeling as that, you know occasion and we can all stand and we can stand up in front of people and talk and we can have arguments and we can talk you know i can sit here now and talking to you and this is all improvised i've not not scripted this isn't this is an unscripted podcast i normally make notes but the title of this podcast winter wonderland literally happened as i was typing it into the logic project because i had no title i had no thought well i don't even know what i'm talking about today you know i had a feeling i wanted to talk and i felt infused about talking but i didn't know what about and um, you know, you know specifically what about? But the, and the winter wonderland, you know, the, the 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 phrase is is that thing of of what I've been just describing to you now is like you know we're in winter and I'm wondering what the hell I'm doing, you know, what the hell am I doing with this music? What the hell am I? Am I going to leave it in the lap of the gods or am I going to nail it down to a thing and do that every night on the gigs? Because that that way makes life in some ways, a lot easier, less stressful. And like I say, it's, you know, it's an easy gig in some respects because I know the music so well, you know. I know the music, you know, better than any music I know at the moment. And it's the opposite of, like I said at the beginning, it's the most of the gigs that I do, a lot of gigs, I just walk into these situations a lot of the time and they're stressful and tiring because they don't really know what's going on in the music and don't really know the music and... It's a vague idea about things that are going to be played and then sometimes they're not played and your head's been like, oh, God, I'm going to have to play this thing tonight because somebody wants to play this thing and then they don't play the thing and your head's been in that and then you're like, oh, God, this is like a nightmare, you know. And um, But I find those things very stressful and, uh, and I have a word with myself all the time to say I'm not going to do that again. That's not good for me. 
I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to concentrate my energies, what little I have of it, and time on things that are meaningful and that I can do a really good job of and represent myself well when I'm playing in front of the public, you know. Because I always remember this guy, Lorenzo Feliciati, he's, uh, he's a bass guitarist from Italy, and I did a couple of projects with him over the years, very lucky to work with him, he's an amazing musician. I remember him saying to me, you never know who's in the audience, you know. It doesn't matter where you're playing, you never know who's in the audience, because it might be that your next world tour might be sat in the audience, you know. And that does happen. I've heard lots of stories about people being discovered. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be discovered, by the way. I'm just saying that as a young, anybody's a young player listening to this, you do, if you're really serious about this thing and you've got hopes and aspirations of, of being involved in, in music long term, um, because you don't deserve it, nobody deserves it. You know, nobody's nobody's giving us this life. You've got to work your ass off at this thing, and I've never worked hard enough. And the people around me that are really successful, and they did work really hard, you know. And um, I've always worked quite hard at too many things, and uh, and that's you know that's fine. But my advice to you is, one is, you know, work your ass off, and secondly, represent yourself well whenever you get on the stage. You know, this guy walked up to me last week and he did this little gig. And at the end of the gig, I was packing my gear away and he walked up to me. And it and it in 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 hindsight, it really pissed me off. And I and I was annoyed with myself when I I'll explain this whole thing about this, which is quite amusing. I find this amusing to myself because it's it completely contradicts where I'm trying to get my head at the moment. He walked up to me and he said Oh, you taking your symbol off the stand is really disappointing to me. That was his opening thing, this lad. He was like about 20. He's a bit pissed. And I immediately, immediately irritated me. You know, it was just an irritating, his, everything about him was irritating. You know, the way he looked, his foppy, silly hair and everything about him was just annoying. And I went, all right, okay. He said, no, it's just that I'd love to have a go of your drums. And I was just like, I just said, it's not going to happen, mate. Shut my head, looked at him like. And then he did the fucking heart thing. He said, Well, love you anyway, and walked off, you know. And I was like, Oh, fucking twat, you know. And uh, I was with Scott Devine, the bass player, and he said, He said, What was he, what was he saying then? I said, Oh, you wanted to have a go at the drums. And he went, Oh, that's your biggest, it's the biggest dread in it. You don't ever want that. You don't ever want to hear at the end of a gig somebody else playing your instrument. And I went off and said, yeah, I remember this wedding I did once with this singer. Uh, it was like a very posh wedding. And, and the, the mother of the bride was extremely angry. Um, she was angry about the marriage. It was horrific. The whole thing was like a, it was like a comedy sketch. Anyway, I was sat in another room at one point having some food. And I heard my drums. You know, when you hear your own instrument, you know what it sounds like. You know, we have our drums shoot, tuned in a certain way, don't we? And... I heard my drums being hit and I got up and walked in and it was the bride's mother and she just found, she'd found my fucking drumsticks, God know how. And she was behind the kit, she was pissed, absolutely leathered. And she was just twatting this thing, hitting it, just hitting everything randomly. And I was just like, oh my God, you know. And that was the memory, <laughs> that was the memory I had when I was talking to Scott about this lad. Anyway, Walter, anyway, so, you know, and at the time I was like, I just, whatever, I was just like, yeah, there's no, there's no way. Anyway, I was carried on packing away. And then about a week later, 
for some reason. I sort of thought about this thing and I thought, wow, you know, what are these, what's this young, what, what are the values of this young person? You know, they walk up to a stranger who's just been playing and they've clearly been doing a gig, you know. And then they say, oh, it's so disappointing you taking your symbol down. And then you're thinking, oh, what are they, oh you're disappointed because we're stopping playing. You want us to play some more. We're not playing anymore because it's the end of the gig and we've finished, you know. That's a shame, but that's life, you know, and you weren't here to hear the rest of it. And that's tough. Come come earlier next time. It's a public gig. It's advertised if you've got your shit together and you can look at a, look at a clock and get somewhere on time if you want to watch some music. But um, but no, that wasn't the response. The response was, I, I you know, I'm I want to have a go of your drum kit, and there was a kind of entitlement. And then there was like, no, mate, it's not going to happen. Just like, no chance. And then the love heart thing, and then like, love you anyway, like as if what I've said, what I've said is offensive. And has angered this person, but he's got over it in the moment. And he's he's reacted in the moment, and he's gonna love you anyway, you twat, you know, because you haven't let me play your instrument. And I was like thinking, God, you know, what sort of person is this asshole? You know, what was what does this person behave like in the rest of their life? You know. And anyway, the thing that's funny about all this is the last month or so I've been meditating, been trying to meditate. <laughs> And trying to, um, this whole thing in meditation, you know, is to not attach, I'm even laughing thinking about this now, to not attach a story to, to you know, to a thought that comes in your mind, you know. So as I'm remembering this guy with his love heart hand I wanted to punch, you know, and, and his foppy hair that I also wanted to punch, which is awful, you know, but it just annoyed me. But, I, you know, I got over it in a moment. I'm now replaying this story in my head you know and it's like that's completely against everything that i'm trying to achieve at the moment you know um and i'm not even like i'm not even doing the thing of observing myself having this i am now because that's funny but at the time i went down this whole thing of like wanting to have this massive rant back at him like one number one the thing i was saying to you before about whoever's listening um about representing yourself on a stage. But the thing is, you earn the right to go on that stage, you know. There's a thing in music, and, and there's a thing in jazz in the UK a bit at the moment, and there's a thing in, in music generally, and it happens for different reasons in music at different times, depending on who's in charge, essentially. Um, but you get people who treat music with the respect that it deserves like they treat the cricket team at school with the respect it deserves. I never earn the right to put the whites on and stand on the stumps with a bat in my hand with a ball hurtling towards me at 80 mile an hour or whatever some kid, some whiz kid from the counties could have thrown the bloody corky at me, you know. I never earned the right because I was shit at cricket and if I'd have stood there, I'd have been hit in the head or, or just, you know, been in hospital or been bowled out within one ball. I didn't earn the right, never earned the right, and I have no regret or whatever. I was crap at it. And that's fine. I never earned the right to be on a rugby team. I never earned the right to be on a football team. I never earned the right to be on a tennis. I never earned the right to be do any of that stuff because I was crap at all of it, you know. And not just not interested, genuinely crap at it. The only thing I was pretty good at was long-distance running. I was pretty quick because I've got long legs and I was pretty fit when I was younger. So I could run long distances, you know, 
I was never very good at sprinting. 15 seconds was my 100 metres. It's pretty shit um, as, as a youngster, you know. But I was, I could do, in the cross-country runs, I was, in our whole year group, I'd be fourth or fifth, you know. There was a couple of really good runners when I was at comp school, when I was like 13, 14. Um, but I was pretty good. And I was, you know, I had, I had a good head for running. And, and my, my late father was very good. He was a good fell runner and stuff. He got into that when he was in his 40s and he was very fit, you know. Again, tall and long-legged, you know. And, and so that was about the only, that's the only thing in sport I'd ever say I was any good at. I was pretty good at, well, no, hold on a minute. I was extremely marginally average at chess for a few years because I played it a lot. And I was, you know, when you're good at chess, that's a whole different level of being good at anything. And I, and I earned the right, I played, you know, I played for a, a club. Marple Bridge and uh, and I um, used to meet at Marple Bridge College and uh, I played in Sweden a lot. I played against some international masters in Sweden. They were amazing. Played blitz against them. Learned loads, you know. And I, I but I studied chess. I used to I used to do puzzles. I used to read openings and stuff. I studied it, you know. I earned the right to sit at that table and at least not get mate in three or mate in fool's mate and all that stuff. You know, I could I could play like the blitz thing. You know, I was pretty good at playing quick. And I could play these guys in Sweden. There's one guy, I always remember him, he was really good. And I remember him playing him and nearly beat him once. And uh, he had a little bit of respect for me, you know, a little bit, a little bit, just a little bit, like a whisker. And I earned the right to get that respect, you know. But you earn the right to get on the stage for a start. And so there's this thing, you know, it happens in education sometimes where... Music's for all. Music's for everyone. You know what? Well, it is for everyone to have a go at. You know, in in a, in a safe space. You know, in in the right appropriate space. But when you're out on doing a public gig on a stage and you've played your gig, nobody ever should have the right to walk up to you and in a demanding way or in whatever way and say that they're gonna you know, they're gonna have a go on your instrument. You know. Anyone that's got that lack of awareness is just in a in a in a very strange place, you know, in life, you know. But anyway, blah blah blah. I had this whole thing of joke with myself about God, you know, the meditation's going well, isn't it, Dave? That's going really well. You've had this I mean, I've just told you this whole story now, and I've just shared that with you now, this neurosis. But um but yeah, but I have been trying to make efforts to, you know, trying to make efforts to be a little bit more um a little bit more chilled out and not get into long things with that kind of negative vibes and try and stay, you know, a little bit more observant of um, of negative thoughts and emotions. You know, like things when you're driving, you just, you know, have, have a bit of a detached vibe, uh, not get drawn into stuff, you know. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, back to the music and, and, the, and the playing and the what have you. Um, so, you know having parts together and leaving things in the moment is a really it can be one liberating and and in one way it can be exhausting you know and you've got to be prepared for that and so that's kind of what um that's the kind of headspace i'm in at the moment i've been sort of trying to been watching quite a few drummers um and looking at some just some different stickings and different ways of playing sticking and orchestration of stickings. I've had this long thing going on with this Brazilian rhythm thing of 
of trying to get this second semi-quaver in the bar. Uh, or if you think of it in quavers, the second quaver in the bar as the accent is one. So as, as you've got your time going bum to ba bum to ba do get to do get to do get to do get to one hand, two e hand, three e hand, four e hand, one e, two e, through one e. Oh, it's in two four normally, isn't it? But the one e and the two e as the louder. Been like, yeah, been on that kind of thing. Discovered something last night. We were having the bio, the biome kind of bass drum, boom, boom, dum, 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 doing that same pattern with that that bass drum pattern. Um, I realised that's another hole there. It's like, oh yeah, maybe that's why I'm finding the other thing hard because I'm finding I'm finding that pattern hard. Because things interesting about that is you've got three you've got three quavers or three semi quavers. We'll talk. We'll say semi quavers for the sake of the, the Brazilian thing is normally two four. You write things in two four and it's semi quavers. So you've got the last semiquaver and then you've got the first two of beat one and then the last semiquaver of beat one and the first two of beat two and then the last of semiquaver of beat two back to one again. So you've got gaduga, gadada, gadiga. So that's the vibe. Yeah, we know what that is. And you're accenting the second one. The thing that I realised with this biome bass drum is you get duga. So you get the first one is with the second of those three right hand strokes it's on the beat but do get and then the next one is with the first one because boom boom the middle that middle um bass drum hit is on the the last semiquaver beat one isn't it and then the third one is in the gap and the thing that's beautiful about all these patterns and this is what i urge you to get into with all these west african rhythms and these um and these uh, South American rhythms, and but they're all sort of West African, aren't they, really, originally? But they're all being sort of just slightly warped and changed as they've migrated around the planet. But is to just clock these little things that happen between the limbs about where things land and line up, you know. Because what I realised was I was finding that pattern really hard to play, and I think actually if I get that down, I'll, it will really help with the other pattern. Um I've noticed this in teaching good students, um, one particularly good student at the moment, and um, and she was practicing something properly and has noticed stuff, good positive stuff has been happening, you know, and so you have this you have this experience. Uh, as as a teacher, a tutor, a mentor, whatever you want to whatever you call it, where you're one is I'm still practicing myself, and I'm still trying to work out what is the best way for me to learn. You know, I still don't really know the answer to that, um, and that's you know that's just way that's just the way it is. Um, so there's that side of it, but then there's also the thing of like you have things that you recommend other people to practice, and they either go away and do that work or they don't. And the ones that do is you see what the result of that is from the way that their playing develops week on week, um, but also from the conversations you have with them about the playing that you don't hear them, uh, the playing that you don't hear because it's playing that they're doing when they, you know, they're, they're playing with their groups or they're practicing and whatever. They come back and re they report back to you, you know, and that's what it's all about. That's the best thing about it. Genuinely the best thing about it. 
it's you know that thing of like you 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 look at somebody's playing and you go wow you got all this stuff together and you sound great and you're just going to be great full stop but if you practice this thing or this kind of collection of ideas this concept of of these coordinational things because they're the trickiest stuff nobody can coordinate everything nobody can do that isn't i don't know anybody alive that's that can just coordinate anything with anything else with four limbs i don't know i think everybody's even you know eric harland and all these incredible people you know marcus gilmore and you know and i was watching i was watching these um I was watching this video with um oh um, his name's gone out of my head completely um, clarence penn I was watching this clarence penn video and he was practicing this sticking, you know, um, and coordinating it. And he was just sharing a video of him doing that thing. And, you know, what he was practicing slowly sounded like, well, it sounded pretty good, actually. But he sounded like pretty much anybody else who was practicing slowly. And then he, and then he finessed it and sped it up and played it with his character. And it sounds ridiculous, you know. But the process, it's still that same process. You know, people, you've got to start, you've got to understand something in order to be able to, you know, have control over it and execute it in a, in a way which is... So anyway, it's a very rambly um, hour. God, I can't believe how long I've been talking for. Blimey, that's unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of... So, yeah, you know, if you're around the next, the 26th, that's my birthday, by the way, 26th, I'm in Lincoln with a trio. We have a Depp organist. Uh, on that gig because Martin Longhorn is away and um, I can't remember who's playing for Martin no, it's gone it's gone right out of my head Sheffield guy from Sheffield anyway um, there's a depth on that gig it'll be a nice gig we're playing most we're playing all of Jamie's tunes Taylor's because he's on the gig and then we'll do some standards and stuff the, the, and then on the the Tuesday we're at Matt and Fred's in Manchester Tuesday the um, 28th, that's right. 29th at the Les Car, 30th at the Puzzle Hall, um, which is Thursday. And the 1st of December, I'm with Arun Ghosh somewhere in Derby. Not sure what that is. Um, he only asked me a few days ago about that. So, um, And then Saturday uh, with the trio at Zeffirelli's, Ambleside, and Sunday in Leeds at Seven Arts. And then the next gigs are in February. So um, we've got a few nice Wakefield Jazz and Scarborough and a few nice gigs um, doing good, going up to Edinburgh, going to the Jazz Bar, um, which is great. Um, we've got a few other things that we are also in the pipeline, uh, a few, couple of other, two or three other Scottish gigs and some other bits and bobs. So, yeah, lots of things going on. So if you're around, anyway, it'd be great if you come to see the gigs. It should be really good. We've got a great new album, 10 tracks, 66 minutes it is, long album. Um, it will be available to purchase on CD on the gigs. I recommend it and um, genuinely do. I, I made an album in 2003 with my fusion band and it was a self-made album and I didn't recommend that to anybody. I re-recorded the drums post that about four times um, and actually ended up, it's all, it's all on Bandcamp that now actually. You can buy pretty much all of that record. It's got a different name. Um, but you can buy all of that stuff 
and and that that's pretty good actually some of that yeah um quite pleased with some of that actually some nice playing on there really nice playing from various fantastic people um it's very old that music now and then there's some weird music i created recently with pete turner and john garner played on a piece the violin great violinist and uh, Pete Turner played on a couple of things on bass, did some great bass stuff on a couple of tunes. And it was all with weird sort of spoken word stuff. All that's on Bandcamp anyway, um, which is under Dave Walsh or Drummy Dave. I'm not sure what it's under, actually. And then there's all my play-along, drum play-along tracks, which, which people buy occasionally. When people buy all that catalogue, they normally buy the whole thing because you can buy all that music for, I mean, not very much money. Um, the play-along tracks are like 99 cents each or 99p or something. Uh, but everything's 99p. But you can buy the whole catalogue for about £25. And it's literally all of the play-along tracks that are on there. And there's about 40 of them. And they're all my Logic projects with no drums. So they've just got a click. You've got two bars of click or one bar of click in. And then you just play whatever you like along to them. There's no drums on there. There's percussion and all kinds of weird instruments and all kinds of stuff. They're They're my practice tracks, but... They're called drumless tracks. Um, there's a few people out there that sell them, but yeah, I've got my little collection on Bandcamp. But the Trio JDM has its own Bandcamp page now, um, so you can find us on on Bandcamp. We've got the at Trio JDM on Instagram as well. There'll be some stuff about the gigs on there and some promo about the album and all that stuff if I can get my shit together, which I probably can't, but you know, I'll do my best. Um, people seem to employ. People seem to have people employed for this stuff these days. If you were good at it, I'm just useless. Um, and I probably should have run some Facebook ads and stuff, but anyway, yeah, I've not had any time for any of that stuff. But um, I'm sure they, I mean, the gigs will be busy anyway because they're always busy, those gigs, and it'll be a nice vibe. But if you, yeah, it'd be great if you came down, if anybody's, you know, local. Looking at some gigs down south for next year as well. Going down, hopefully going down to Cornwall, maybe to the Ivy Jazz Club and all those, down to Cardiff, Swansea, hopefully, um, London, hopefully, a uh, few of the bits and bobs. Yeah, just got to get a bit of a vibe together with this first little run, get some more footage and some promo pics, some more promo pics and and just, yeah, positive vibes. But the, the, the band sounds great. Two sets of great music. The Matt and Freds will be three sets. So we'll be playing probably a few other... We've got quite a few other standards that we do live that we play. We've got our own kind of arrangements of them. But the, most of the gigs won't have those. They'll just, we'll just be playing the album tune. So there's two covers on the album. There's Alu Cha, which is a Charlie Parker tune, which is the only two-part tune he wrote. And um, the Pete Bernstein tune, Little Green Men, which is a great, great piece, great tune. And... Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what's coming on. That's what's going on with the trio, and um, yeah, just to mention also the Johnny Roadhouse music, my friends down there. Uh, if you're in Manchester and want to buy musical instruments, uh, pop in there, say hello to Johnny, and say I sent you. It's always good. Um, Lee Mullins there on a Friday for all your drumming needs and um, just some hilarious socialisation. Is always good. It's always somebody down there, or other. it's always funny. Um, it's tricky for me at the moment. Term time, I can't get down there because Fridays I have to be in college because I've got we've got our lunchtime gigs things going on. So I don't get to see Lee. Well, probably won't get to see him till God knows when. Actually, March maybe because I'm away at Christmas. So, uh, but yeah, anyway, blah blah blah. Um, Johnny Roadhouse, Manchester, Oxford Street, down, down near the Royal Northern College of Music. 
And um, I think that's it, really. Yeah, I always mention this Patreon thing, but I don't know what's going on with Patreon. It's all a bit weird. They keep sending me emails about new this and that. Nobody ever looks at it. There's, there is a Patreon. If you go to the Pod Podomatic page where my podcast lives, Dave Walsh Drums in the Shed, which is where it's hosted, there are links on there. There's a, there's a Patreon link. I've had a few people ask me about it, and I just say, oh, I don't know, just go to the Patreon link on my on my Podomatic um, page. So you should be able to find Dave Walsh Drums in the Shed on Podomatic. And on there, there's two links. There's a donate link just to PayPal. So if you want to donate 50p or a pound or... I was going to do this buy me a coffee thing. Um, I wish they did things like buy me a drumstick. You don't want someone to buy a pair of drumsticks because that's like 12, 13 quid now, isn't it? It's a right rip-off. But one drumstick. Buy me a cymbal felt. There you go. Maybe that should be my new vibe. Buy me a cymbal felt. Because on Amazon, all the students at college, they buy these little, I think they're like 10 quid. I think you get, or 12 quid, and you get 10 felts and 10 little nylon, the little nylon cups, you know, that the felts go in. So, yeah. So a pound's like a felt in it with a nylon vibe, you know. Um, buy me a felt. There you go. Buy me a felt. That sounds a bit weird. Sounds like some sort of something you get arrested for. Anyway. That's all that. Or oh, the other one is there is a pay, there is a link to the Patreon thing on there. And, and, and yeah, it's just, I don't know. I'm probably going to get rid of it, take it down, because no one ever interacts with it. And it doesn't really seem to have any purpose for me. Because um, I don't, I, uh, the Patreon thing, I think you, you know, you're supposed to do things on Patreon. I, I listen to these podcasts and they give special episodes and ad free this and blah, blah, blah. And this is just what it is. Once, you know, once every. Once every month, blah, blah, blah. So um, thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back normal time next month. Um, yeah, normal time, not first week of December. So, um, no, we're just after the gig's finished, actually. The last gig is on that Sunday, actually. So I'll be doing, yeah, be recording something that night. So um, I'll, um, I'll catch up with you then. So, yeah, bye for now. <laughs>